This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Rakuten's Big Give Week is back with 15% cash back. It's a festival of savings at hundreds of stores, including Doc Martens, Ninja Kitchen, and Hotels.com. Prep for summer and save big on beauty, travel, electronics, and more. It's one of Rakuten's biggest cash back events, And it's on May 6th through May 13th. Join today for free and get an extra 10% cashback boost. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app today. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. This is Intelligence Matters with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell. Brought to you by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. Let me ask you about testing So where are we on testing in terms of the quality of the testing, the speed at which somebody gets results, the quality of the antibody tests, enough tests to go around? Can you talk about that? Oh, my. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, This this is one of the big challenges, and it's a, a source of great frustration for me. Number one is we didn't have the kind of federal leadership that actually took control of this. It was almost if every air traffic control tower in the country was responsible singularly for getting their plane from city A to city B and nobody else was involved. Imagine what air traffic control would look like in this country. I think the second piece of it was the oversight of testing really was challenged. And we had a number of tests that came on the market that had serious, serious challenges in terms of their sensitivity and specificity, how they operated. To make a long story short, there are many problems with testing today that are not being addressed, and I don't see anything coming down the pike right now from the federal government level or the private sector level that's going to address this. We need a Winston Churchill moment. We need an FDR moment. We need to bring everyone together and say, this is us versus the virus. Now, I'm not naive. I've been in this business for 45 years. I understand the issue of politics and partisan nature of things. But if there was ever a time we could minimize the partisan issues, whether it's about wearing masks or you know any other aspect of opening schools, how we do that, now's the time for that. This is us versus the virus. It's not going to last forever. If we can get it taken care of now, we can minimize the impact and then go from there. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Dr. Michael Osterholm is a professor of public health 
and the director of the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy at the University of Minnesota. He is a widely respected voice on COVID-19. We just sat down with Dr. Osterholm for a second time to get an update on the likely road ahead for the virus. I'm Michael Morrell, and this is Intelligence Matters. Dr. Osterholm, welcome back to Intelligence Matters. It is great to have you on the show again. Thank you very much. You know, your first appearance on the show was one of our highest rated episodes ever. So the national security crowd is really interested in in COVID for a lot of different reasons. Before we start, I want to mention that your center at the University of Minnesota, which I just mentioned in the opening, now has its own weekly podcast called the Osterholm Update COVID-19. Where can my listeners find that? They can actually go to our website, uh, www.sidrap, C-I-D-R-A-P.umn.edu. That's C-I-D-R-A-P.umn.edu, and they can pick it up there. Great. And I should tell people that it's a great website in general for information on infectious disease in general and COVID-19 in particular. So, doctor, let's start with your overall assessment on where we are in the coronavirus. You know, where is the United States today with the virus and with the disease? The first time we chatted, we were using we were using waves as a metaphor, and I've heard you recently recently use the word forest fire as a metaphor. So where are we? Well, one of the things we've done is uh, come to understand that this is not going to be like an influenza virus pandemic. Uh, when we first talked, we said, well, we have got a coronavirus here. Maybe it'll act like an influenza pandemic where you actually do truly have a wave where the you see cases for uh, several months and then for reasons that we still don't understand virtually disappear. And you go through a trough period and then you see the second wave often, which is much more severe than the first wave. Well, this is a coronavirus. It's not acting like a flu virus. It is one where in two other scenarios that we painted in a, a discussion of what this might look like uh, in terms of going forward from, from last spring is now a, what I would call a raging forest fire. And it is one where it will continue to burn and it will burn hot as long as it can find human wood to burn. And unfortunately, some areas of the world have figured out that You know, we have to go in and do everything we can to bring this super forest fire under control. In other words, as some would, that terrible term lockdown. And then only then, once we have it under control, will we start to ease up on the brake a bit and then very slowly bring the world back to its everyday activities. We elected, on the other hand, to say, well, the the fire was about 60, 70% contained. We're done. And that other... 30% or 40% of the fire that just continued to rage on and now is much larger than the original forest fire that we were trying to put out. That's where we're at today. And that is going to continue. I don't see anything changing in that regard. I think we're having almost a world today made up of two totally different COVID experiences, one where it's out of control and one where it's in control. So doctor, some questions about the virus itself. What what makes it so insidious? Is it the length of time someone is infectious before they become symptomatic, if they ever become symptomatic? Is it the morbidity and mortality of the disease? Is it all of the above, more more one than the other? What what makes this so, so insidious? It's all of the above and more. Um, you know, we're learning about this virus every day. Uh, first of all, we have now confirmed that, in fact, uh, if you look at transmission, this virus 
basically has, in a sense, adopted some of the uh, issues around MERS and SARS viruses, both coronaviruses that were not good, meaning that um, in those cases, those viruses had the potential to cause super spreading events or a large number of cases associated with one individual. And uh, that has happened with this one. But at the same time, it has also uh, taken on another kind of uh, quality that makes it much worse than SARS or MERS because in the case of those two infectious diseases, one was not highly infectious till day five, six, or seven of their illness. And by that time, we could identify these cases, put them into isolation, and virtually stop transmission. That's how we ended SARS, both eliminating the animal reservoir in the markets and then stopping cases. MERS, we don't eliminate completely because we're not going to put down 1.7 million camels on the Arabian Peninsula where this virus is naturally occurring. Instead, we just deal with the spillover into humans when it happens. With this virus, what we're seeing is transmission is occurring well ahead of someone becoming clinically ill, several days before they become clinically ill, or they don't become clinically ill at all, or so mildly ill that they don't recognize even have uh, an illness. And that type of transmission has been substantial. Uh, So that when you add in the ability to infect a lot of people, like the super spreader concept, and then you put that at the front end of the infection where you have no way of identifying these people, that's, that's been bad, and that's what we're in part dealing with. The second thing about this virus that is very concerning is from a clinical standpoint, we're realizing that this has many tricks up its sleeve in terms of how it causes human illness. And it's not just one simple effect infects your lungs or, you know, it, it basically causes a respiratory infection. It has many different component pieces that have made clinical care a real challenge. In some instances, in t- turning your own body on yourself in terms of, of, of the infectious process and the immune system actually becoming a problem. Uh, I think the third issue that this virus has surely uh, created some real challenges with, and that is, how do we ultimately develop immunity? Can we develop long-term immunity to this virus? We know that with uh, the other coronaviruses, we don't have good evidence that you do develop long-term immunity. And so one of the challenges we've had here is that once you've been infected or been vaccinated, what does that mean for the future? And we don't know. So I'm quite uh, confident we'll find vaccines that will allow us to have an immune response that may very well provide protection, but how long will it last and how good will it be? And we're even now raising that very same question with people who have been infected. After so many months, can they get reinfected? Now we're hearing of more reports of that happening. Uh, There's still very few of those, and I think they need to really be investigated carefully to be sure that that's the case. But imagine if we end up finding that this illness is not going to go away through the concept of what we call herd immunity, where you have a substantial number of people in the community infected, recover, have immunity to the virus or are vaccinated and have immunity. And then ultimately, uh, you know, we don't worry about them again. They're protected. What if we can become susceptible again over and over again? So doctor, a couple more questions about immunity. Is there any evidence that some people are naturally immune? At this point, we have no evidence to support that. Um, We surely do understand that people have very different expressions for the disease. Some who have this asymptomatic infection who have no idea that they even were infected surely have one kind of response to the virus, uh, which 
would support that there's something unique about their immune response or their the way that they got infected that is different than those who obviously develop serious illness and die. But in terms of a population being innately protected, meaning I can walk into a crowded bar tonight, and uh, even though there's lots of transmission going on in the bar, I'm okay, I'm not going to get it. We don't have any evidence of that. And you you raised the issue a couple of minutes ago of whether um, once infected insect, whether you can get reinfected. Those folks who, who had the virus five or six months ago, is there any research being done on those folks to see whether it's possible to be reinfected? There is research going on. And of course, we only have a limited number of individuals who had confirmed cases in March or April, who then recovered sufficiently enough to say, well, they don't have some ongoing condition occurring. Um, and then therefore did get reinfected. Again, I, I want to be very cautious about this. I don't think that we have enough data to support that that actually can happen. But theoretically, it might very well be happening. Um, I, I maybe might be a little bit surprised that we would see a lot of people in the first months after you know, having recovered from infection because what data we do have says at least antibody stays around for some time. And uh, so I think that at this point, we're going to be doing a lot more research over the next year uh, in terms of both clinical cases and what happens to their uh, outcome as they go forward, and also people who get vaccinated. What happens with them? Do they have protection today but not have protection four or five months from now? Both of those are going to be really critical questions to answer. Is there any indication, doctor, that it's mutating in any significant way? Well, first of all, the any virus will change genetically. It'll, in a sense, mutate. Um, but we have to be very mindful of what that means. There are those kind of mutations that are part of the aging process, you might say, of an infectious agent. If I could liken it, it would be like, Mike, if we had a picture of you when you were 5, when you were uh, 12, when you were 16, and now that you're 39. You know, what would it look like in terms of being you, same you? But none of those change who you are. And we're surely seeing those changes in this virus. Where it ages, we can see that change. But there's been some suggestion that a different strain has emerged from what originally was present in Wuhan that now makes us a more infectious virus. Some even suggest that it might mean that it's uh, more, it has a higher level of ability to, to cause serious disease. And uh, those data are really lacking, I think, right now to support that that's the case. Um, you know, we have to keep an open mind to that, but I'm not a coronavirus uh, uh, virus researcher as such, but I sure spend a lot of time with the uh, people who are the world's experts on coronaviruses. And I have not yet uh, seen one who would say that this, there's evidence that this virus has changed in a fundamental way that would either, uh, one, change its transmission, or two, its ability to cause serious disease. So it's, you know, we're going to have to pay attention to this part of the picture also, but for right now, I, I don't think that's a problem. And then one more question on the virus, which begins to transition, I think, to other things. But why is the virus having a disproportionate impact on black and brown Americans? It's a combination of multiple factors, and including some we still don't completely understand. One is that uh, one has to look at underlying comorbid conditions, um, whether they be uh, due to increased heart disease, diabetes, um, obesity issues. If you look at all of those, they surely have been well documented to occur at a higher incidence in, in those populations. And these are underlying risk factors for the disease. 
in terms of a serious outcome, including dying. Now, in addition, um, we know that lifestyle itself, meaning lower socioeconomic status, um, you know, not having access to, to uh, you know, more nutritious food sources, et cetera, surely all play to that issue too. And so this is an important area that needs uh, immediate attention in terms of what this virus is illustrating. But in addition to that, epidemiologically, we know that if you look at essential workers and look at the disproportionate number of essential workers that are black or brown, they were made to go to work. They had to go to work. In fact, if you look at many of the meatpacking plant outbreaks in this country, primarily made up of black and brown individuals who, number one, uh, were made essential workers, had to go back to work. And number two, if they didn't go to work in some states, they were even denied unemployment benefits if they decided the risk was too great and they had to to leave that area of employment. So th- that kind of work experience plays a huge role. Then if you look at just living conditions, and in this case, uh, the number of multi-generational families that are among the black and brown populations is higher than it is among the white population. Well, you know what? If I'm grandpa and grandma, and I'm doing everything I can to protect myself in terms of distancing, but I've got a son or a daughter or a grandson or granddaughter who live in the same apartment with me who have to go to work and they get infected and they come back into my apartment, what distancing have I done? What can I do? And so we saw that as a situation also. So there are a number of factors that come to play here. And if nothing else, um, as this uh, pandemic is addressed in the future, we have to understand that this just really opens up and illustrates Uh, the disproportionate impact that the black and brown populations have in this country for health and why we have to address so many more of the issues around that piece. So perhaps we can shift to medical protocols and let me ask you about testing. So where are we on testing in terms of the quality of the testing, the speed at which somebody gets results, the quality of the antibody tests, enough tests to go around? Can you talk about that? Oh my, <laughs> uh, this, this, this is one of the big challenges and it's a, a source of great frustration for me. Um, you know, I wrote about this back in April, the challenges that we would have with testing, the shortages at a time when the mantra was test, test, test. Um, our group actually put out a viewpoint paper that's available on the CIDRAP site on smart testing and how we had to use these tests uh, doing testing the right population with the right test at the right time for the right result to actually didn't take the right action. And meanwhile, again, we just kept having the mantra of testing, 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 that anybody who wanted a test could get it. They were readily available. And we had some who wrote pieces that said, oh my, we should be testing millions and millions of people every week in this country. And several things converge to really create the crisis we're in today, and I call it a crisis. Number one is we didn't have the kind of federal leadership that actually took control of this. It was almost if every air traffic control tower in the country was responsible singularly for getting their plane from city A to city B and nobody else was involved. Imagine what air traffic control would look like in this country. Um, And so we didn't have a national plan for how to bring the private sector together with what we needed in the public sector, including the public health labs, and looking at things like reagents, looking at sampling devices, et cetera. And uh, we laid that out in our, in our smart testing document that this was desperately needed and it didn't happen. It didn't materialize. Um, and so part of it is, has been kind of like the wild, wild west. 
And I think that's been a challenge in itself, and we're seeing that today. I get very concerned when I keep hearing people uh, touting, well, we're going to have new technologies coming down. Look at so-and-so has announced a new machine that's coming out or a new test that's coming out. But every one of them are subjected to the same supply chain issues. Uh, And all of them, I don't care how many new ones come out, if you can't test it and you don't have it in a timely way, what good is it? I think the second piece of it was the oversight of testing really was challenged. Um, Early on when the CDC was unable to deliver on its primary test uh, approach, um, you saw a response that, oh my, we're way behind in testing. So the FDA basically opened up testing in, again, another wild, wild west way. And we had a number of tests that came on the market that had serious, serious challenges in terms of their sensitivity and specificity, how they operated. And this was allowed to go on for some time, both for the virus test itself and the antibody test. And so this didn't help, is because we did have tests in some cases, but they were terrible. They were literally terrible. And even some of the tests that we did have, for example, antibody, uh, you know, you had basically a 50-50 chance in, in a testing environment where you had a false positive result. So how am I going to tell somebody you're positive? I don't really know what it means because I don't know what antibody means yet. Oh, and by the way, half the time you're not really positive, okay? So, so we had real challenges with that. And then we created this mantra again in the testing, testing, testing world that anybody and everybody who wants to be tested could be tested. And uh, as we saw the number of cases increase around the country, more people became very concerned um, and we know many, many people who just said, you know, I, I, I just go in every couple of days to get tested just to be sure. And so what happened is we've used incredible resources for testing that shouldn't be done. In smart testing, basically, you really want to, first of all, test the population who is at greatest risk of having this disease, i.e. those who are sick. They should be able to get tested on the very day that they become ill, and those results should be back within 24 hours or less. Today, we have many people waiting seven, eight, or nine days to get results back, which have very little meaning to them clinically or from a public health standpoint. So that's a challenge. Uh, Number two is then we can use this testing, if it's done quickly, to do the kind of contact tracing follow-up if, in fact, we're not a house on fire. Right now, trying to do contact tracing in many locations around this country would be like trying to plant your petunias in a Category 5 hurricane. You know, not possible. And so we've got to bend that curve. We've got to get it down. And then if we weren't seeing, you know, 70,000 plus cases a day in this country, and we were back down into that range of 1,000 or less cases a day, which other countries have achieved per population rate, um, we would then have a much, much, much lower uh, demand for testing that we could then match up with what we have with that testing. And so to make a long story short, there are many problems with testing today that are not being addressed. And I don't see anything coming down the pike right now from the federal government level or the private sector level that's going to address this. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back with more of our discussion with Dr. Michael Osterholm. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. 
Doctor, where, where are we in terms of treating the disease compared to, say, where we were three months ago? Well, we are in a much better place treating the disease on one hand. And then let me share with you, I think, the, the emerging uh, tragedy that's coming. Um, on the upside, uh, I give great credit to the intensivists of this country, the doctors and nurses and support staff that work in intensive care units. They have learned a great deal about this very, very complicated disease caused by this very unique virus. This is a disease that we will be studying for decades and decades to come just by the very nature of its unique presentations, all the different organs that affected, how it impacted on our immune systems and what then happened because of the dysfunction of our immune systems brought on by this virus. And then in addition, even the long-term outcomes and what that means. And so in a number of the uh, intensive care units uh, in this country in the earliest days, we saw up to 70% of the people who were put on mechanical ventilators who died. Today, that number is down around 20%. And it's a remarkable testament without even any additional drugs per se, just how to manage these patients in a much more effective way. Second of all, we have had an improvement in drugs. Um, uh, as many of you know, the remdesivir has surely had some positive impact, although I think we have to be careful to understand how much, uh, as well as dexamethasone, the uh, anti-inflammatory drug that also has been very, very helpful. Um, those two together add some incremental improvement. We don't know how much, but uh, uh, surely is something. But I think the challenge we have right now is where I worry that we're going to see the case fatality rates or the percentage of people who, for example, get in intensive care who will die. And the reason for that, in a number of locations around the country, we have hit basically what I call the case cliff. The case cliff is where if I can support uh, 47 people in our intensive care unit here, um, you know, I've got the staff to do it, the expertise in terms of our doctors and nurses and support staff who really understand the very, very sophisticated, complicated medical practice of intensive care medicine. And that is great. But when you overflow that intensive care unit, they can open up more beds and call them intensive care units. But now we're starting to see the staffing is diminished. And uh, I can tell you personal experiences. We have seen intensive care units uh, throughout the country where they would have one intensive uh, care nurse, very highly trained, incredibly talented, who would care for a single patient because they were that complicated in terms of their clinical picture. Now today, that same nurse is responsible for five cases with two junior nurses to help support her or him in that activity. And uh, when that happens, when you hit the case cliff, it's not just about beds now, it's about the expertise and what you have for access to care. And, and I think you're going to start seeing case fatality rates increasing again. Uh, just because of the fact that uh, some of these uh, hospitals are just overwhelmed. And that would be a real tragedy uh, for that to happen. Yeah. Okay, vaccines. Several questions here. Is getting to a vaccine guaranteed? If we can get to one, how long will it take to get to one that we know that works and is safe? And how long for enough doses to go around? So in short, tell us what we need to know about vaccines here. Well, since we have the next seven hours to do this, I look forward to that. <laughs> um, uh, well, let me, in a, in, a, in a snapshot, say that, yes, I think we will get to a vaccine, more than one, in fact. Um, and uh, what is still unclear as to how well they'll work 
and how safe they'll be. That's going to be the huge challenge. And how soon will we know that? The issue right now is we know that just on the preliminary data that we have from at least four or five vaccines, you can make this neutralizing antibody, the kind of antibody that's most protective. You surely may uh, elicit a response from your T cells, another type of cell that is very important in, in supporting the immune response. The question is, we don't know, is how long that kind of response lasts. And is it something that despite the fact recent studies show that the antibody levels drop precipitously after a clinical illness, at least, and we're still looking to see what happens with vaccines, um, are we like the other coronaviruses going to be compromised in terms of long-term protection? So surely we'll all take a vaccine, you know, that may work only 50% of the time or 60% of the time. Um, and we even may take it if it only works for six to 12 months. But those conditions are going to be really critical to understand in terms of just how applicable such a vaccine will be for the world. You know, we have to revaccinate 8 billion people every year or more, even more frequent to maintain protection. And that's a challenge that's very different than just does the vaccine work? Well, it works sometimes for so long. The second piece of this is going to be safety. Uh, we still have lots of questions about the safety issues here. Um, not that I'm suggesting that there's going to be safety problems, but we have to answer that. And I think we've played into the worst fears of the anti-vax crowd uh, with the idea of Operation Warp Speed. That was the worst name, whoever came up with that name. I, I, I wish they would have retired it because it gives people the sense that we will just, you know, do everything we can to get to a vaccine status, including walking through, running through, blindly ignoring safety concerns. And, you know, we can't do that. It just can't be done. Uh, if we have one safety concern with a vaccine, it will have measurable impact in a very negative way in all of our vaccine work. So I don't know when this vaccine or vaccines are going to be available or how well they'll protect. Those are all big questions yet. I think the final piece is how well can we uh, anticipate a vaccine coming and start producing doses even ahead of time? And what does that mean? And I think that's still a huge challenge on a global basis. Um, you're going to be hearing about this month vaccines from China, vaccines from England, vaccines from the United States. How does on a worldwide basis, do the supplies match up with what we need? Do you actually have, for example, um, the enough vials, enough syringes? You know, a, a vaccine is just that. It doesn't mean anything until it's a vaccination when it actually is in the individual. So I think that's still all a challenge, too. And I can just say at this point that, um, you know, stay tuned. Uh, this is surely would be a, a miracle game changer if we could find a vaccine that was safe, had durable immunity, uh, that required very infrequent uh, dosing, again, or boosters. But I don't know if we're going to find that. And I think that's what we're all waiting for. Doctor, a couple questions about public health policy. The first is something that I've actually heard from folks who say something like the following, you know, epidemiologists say that this is not going to stop until we get to herd immunity. So why social distance? Why not speed up the process of getting to herd immunity? What's your response to that sentiment? Well, there's a price to pay if you speed it up. The price is a lot of people are going to get infected and people are going to die. And I think even recently with this surge in cases that has happened uh, in the United States, in young adults, we're now seeing that the overlapping uh, epidemic of, of obesity in young adults 
is putting a lot of young adults at a very high risk of serious disease and dying. And that that by itself, people hadn't necessarily anticipated the big impact that would have. Also, the number of cases where we're seeing spillover today from uh, young adults who are infected, who then infect mom and dad or grandpa and grandma or colleagues at work, where now they are at high risk of having a serious outcome. Um, I'm aware uh, of a situation near my hometown uh, where I grew up as a boy, where there was a graduation party held in June. Uh, and uh, they had an indoor party uh, activity as part of it. And um, everyone showed up uh, and there was an outbreak that occurred, some transmission that occurred of the virus there. And in the past week, both grandpa and grandma have died as a result of their infection, having attended the graduation party. Those are the kind of consequences that will be very real and, and have, I think, an impact in a way where people say, is that what I really want to do? So our job is to try to do the following. And I've said this on my last uh, time with you here, Michael, is we're trying to thread the ropes of the needle. What we're trying to do is not destroy our economy, not destroy our society as we know it, but at the same time limit transmission as much as we can so that we can get to basically a time where we'll let vaccine do the work of achieving that herd immunity. And, you know, I think one of the things that we now have the data for, look at the countries in the world that have done that, that they really acted on the data. They did drive it down sufficiently so that they then could do test and trace effectively and that they could hold back this this number of cases. You know, here we are in the United States, you know, 70,000 plus cases a day. And I look at countries like Germany and others where it's 200, 300 cases a day. You know, we have missed the first opportunity to do something here. I hope we don't miss the second opportunity. Just to give you some perspective, to get to herd immunity in this country, if we know today that about 15% of the cases that occur are ones that get tested and reported. So if you look at the, the number of cases we have today in the United States, a little over three and a half million cases, that actually represents about 24 million, almost 25 million actual infections. That's still only about seven to 8% of the, state, of the country's population. If we look at what it would take to get up to herd immunity in the United States, 60% of the population infected, hopefully protected, that would mean 65,000 cases of reported infection every day for the next 365 days. That's what it would take. That's what I don't think people understand. That's what we're up against unless we un come to our wits and say, we got to contain this. We got to do a better job, which means we're going to have to go back and revisit what it means to, to shut down or slow down and get these case numbers at a much lower level and then test and trace our way into the future. So doctor, if, if you were advising the president, what would you tell him he should do? Would it, would it make sense to call a do over here and start again and shut down the country for two weeks and then start testing, contact tracing, et cetera? Is that is that what we should do? Well, the first thing I would do is something maybe uh, not obvious, and or some people would maybe even frown upon it, but we need a Winston Churchill moment. We need an FDR moment. We need to bring everyone together and say, this is us versus the virus. Now, I'm not naive. I've been in this business for 45 years. I understand the issue of politics and partisan nature of things. But if there was ever a time we could minimize the partisan issues, whether it's about wearing masks 
or you know any other aspect of opening schools, how we do that. Now's the time for that. And if we could just all come together to say, how are we going to do this? And that's, if you look at countries where they've been successful in getting this under control, that has been one of the most important leadership qualities of the individual leading that country was to help people all understand this is us versus the virus. It's not going to last forever. If we can get it taken care of now, we can minimize the impact and then go from there. So that would be number one. Number two is just what you just said. We have to understand why we're going to need some short-term pain again. And I understand the pain. I've had a dear friend lose a business. I know many people who've been out of jobs who are desperate right now for work, single moms who don't have the money to pay for their rent this month, and they can't go back to work because they've got three kids, and the schools may or may not you know, be meeting in session, but rather online, and the only backup care they have are a grandpa and grandma who are both at risk of serious illness, and they're beside themselves. I understand that, and I know that we have to address that. We have to address that in a meaningful way. But having said that, we're going to keep going through what we're doing right now if we don't change our approach and meaning get these cases from you know, 100 to 120 cases per 100,000 to below that. Of, of a few cases per 100,000, and then we can move through for the next 6, 8, 10, 12 months, however long it might be, in a much, much more uh, safe, relaxed, and financially slash economic stable world. And so I, I don't know any other way to do it. And I know people get upset when they hear me say this. I'm just the message, messenger. I'm not the message. And I think people just still have a hard time understanding that. What about what about the school issue? What's your view on the school issue in the context of what we just talked about? Well, uh, several things. First of all, it, it, we have to educate our children. I mean, this is a critical part of it. But we also have to understand we're in a very unusual period of time. And for the next year, I hope we all can come together and just acknowledge that there is no one right way to do this. It's going to matter where you're at in terms of the number of cases that are occurring in the community. It's going to matter what age the child is. Uh, we have to protect our children, but we also have to protect our, our teachers and school-related uh, employees. Uh, and we have to protect our families so kids don't bring home a virus from school uh, that then might infect mom and dad or grandpa and grandma in another big way. And so, first of all, my one response is, please be flexible and understanding. I am so impressed with all the school superintendents I've dealt with on this issue, and there have been many. Same with teachers. They all want to open schools. They want to be back with their students. But they realistically also have challenges with that in terms of safety. And when you look at the number of teachers in this country or support staff who not only are older but also have underlying health problems, about a fourth of all the teachers in this country today are people who would be at high risk for having a bad outcome if they got infected. So how do we protect them? My bottom line message is this should all be locally decided. I think the school districts in of themselves are the experts about their populations, their students, their parents, their faculty, staff, and we need to let them make the decision. It should not be a top-down decision. Everyone wants to get their students back. Number two is I think it's really important that we understand if there was anything we should be supporting right now, it's helping schools do that. And that's going to take federal support now. They can't wait another four or five months. We're trying to get them into school now. And so I can't emphasize the urgency of moving 
uh, you know, the the money from the D.C. to the states and, and then to the local schools. It's got to be done. And uh, uh, if they don't, you know, we're going to have a, a challenge. I mean, I, I find it very hard that, you know, we can support bars and restaurants right now in a way that we're doing much more than we're supporting schools. And I think if there was anything we're going to be remembered for is how we handle schools in the end. And and when they look back on this pandemic, you know, 10, 20, 40, 50 years from now, one of the areas that will be examined for is how did we handle our healthcare delivery, who got access, and how did we do schools? I think right. those are the two things we got to remember. So, Doctor, one last question here. Given everything that you just talked about, given what we know and don't know about the virus and the disease and our likely policy course through at least the end of next January and American culture here, how do you see this playing out? What do you expect between now and say the end of January when at least the leadership question might change? You know, I, I don't know, um, nor does anyone, but let me just give you a, a scenario I think that's going to become more important every day. You know, you and I are busy people. We're driving down the freeway late for a meeting and we're going, you know, eight miles over the speed limit, but we're late. So it makes sense. And then we come upon the scene of an accident where they're trying to extricate somebody from a car. And, uh, you know, we see it and our heart starts to race and we slow down and say, this is nuts. Why am I doing this? Okay. I, I, and I obeyed the speed limit for the next 24 or 36 hours. And then I'm kind of back at it again. On the other hand, I get a call at two in the morning and one of my family members, who I love dearly, has just been killed by a drunk driver. And you know what? I never forget that the rest of my life. I make it my life's passion to deal with that issue. And I think what's going to happen is, is that as much as we hear about COVID and what's happening in our various communities and people may kind of come upon like the extrication scene I just talked about, I think we're going to see all these counties, all these states that were once red or blue by somebody's definition, turn into COVID colored. And I think over the next few months, people are going to have very different attitudes about this when their loved ones begin dying. And then they realize, oh my, <laughs> this is real. This isn't an argument anymore about some rights or civil rights. This is about real lives. So we'll see what happens between now and January. But I think this particular fact of life is going to have a big impact. Doctor, thank you very much for joining us. And just a reminder to my listeners to check out your podcast. It's absolutely terrific. Great education. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Michael. That was Dr. Michael Osterholm. I'm Michael Morrell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters. This has been the Intelligence Matters podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morrell. Brought to you by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. The podcast is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, and Jake Rosen. If you haven't already, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you download podcasts. You can follow the show on Twitter at Intel Matters Pod and follow Michael at Michael J. Morrell. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS News Radio. Are you ready for an all-new season of Survivor? You better be, because Survivor 46 is here, and it's 90 minutes of twists and turns you don't want to miss. Better yet, after each episode, there's a brand new episode of On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. 
Each week, we go behind the scenes of the episode's biggest moments, taking you into the how and the why things happened. And this season, we're very lucky to be joined by an expert, the winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares. What is up? I'm thrilled to be joining this team and to be giving you my take on how and the why players made the moves they did, what it takes to outwit, outplay, and outlast, and to ask Jeff some questions because even after 26 days out there, there is still a lot for me to uncover. Bring it, D. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. 